Boy, do we have good news to share with you today. The Lamb is overcome. There is life in the name of Jesus. And every single one of us is eligible. I don't know if you have received that or have not received that, but I'm going to tell you, there is no better news. There is no better life. There is no better hope. And I hope that you know it. I hope that you know it in your soul because man, oh man, it is the greatest thing there is. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn to Psalm 40. Um, And Psalm 40, what a great, amazing psalm. We have this week left in Psalms and actually just next week. And then we're done kind of our journey uh, through this first book of Psalms. Uh, And and I love this psalm that we're going to look at today. Uh, Talk about... uh, an incident that is, is burned into my memory, uh, an incident that I remember from my childhood. Um, I was probably, I don't know, seven, eight years old, something like that. And, and so my family, I have a sister who is uh, 14 months older than I am and a brother who is 10 months younger than I am. So the three of us were kind of like, I don't know, the three amigos or what's, what's uh, more evil than that? We were, the, we were the evil version of that, right? We made trouble and, and caused problems and all that. But we were kind of like a team. We were kind of a bundle and we all came together. And, and yet my, I had a younger sister who was born uh, about four and a half, exactly four and a half years after, after I was born. So we were about four and a half years apart there. Uh, and remember there was a time that we were on a trip, you know, those family vacations that we do in the summer, everybody piles into the car. We had a big station wagon and we all piled into the station wagon and we are headed down the road. I think we were going to Florida or something. We stopped at a campground. Um, I'm not sure if it was just a break or if we stopped overnight or whatever, but this was not, when you, when you hear campground today, if you've been camping, you think of like this multiplex with, you know, activity centers and pools and lakes and all that. This was not that, okay? This was like somebody put a driveway in and said, there's woods, you can camp out in them and pay us on the way in. Kind, that's what campgrounds were as we were going. But this one was a special campground because it had a playground at it, um, which meant metal poles, swing set, and a slide that you didn't want to get on because it would burn the backs of your legs off, right? But we had been in the car for... I don't know, 12 hours or whatever. And so this was, you know, nirvana. This was utopia for us. It was like, oh, there is a playground. And so we ran to the playground. Now, we got to the playground. My brother and I, we, we were very interested in the swings. My older sister had dutifully picked out the best of the swings that was available. If you've ever played on a playground like this, you know that there are swings that are usable and there are swings that are not, right? My sister found the best one and was starting to swing on that. My brother and I noticed that next to this campground, I mean, next to this playground, there was a, a very interesting pond. It was the, the pond, of, the lake of slime, let's say. And as two, you know, eight, seven, eight-year-old boys, we thought this was fascinating and deserved further investigation. So from the playground down to this lake of slime, we walked down this this you know, incline to the edge of the pond. And, you know, we had a very deep discussion about how thick do you think that scum is on top of the pond? How deep do you think it is? What do you think would happen if we jumped in? We took sticks and rocks and experimented, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And so as we finished our philosophical discussion and we were turning around and heading back up the incline to find the swings that were left, my little sister did what any little sister would do. She had decided that what we were doing as her big brothers was fascinating and she needed to be a part of it. So she came barreling down this incline. 
but her brakes did not work. And she went right in and disappeared below. At this point, my brother and I did what any good big brothers do. We ran. (laughs) And my mom was coming towards us and we were like, save her and we are disappearing because somehow this is our fault. And my mom raced into the lake and picked her up out of the lake and she had green stuff all over her. And I'm pretty sure we weren't camping there because there was a lot of upsetment about the fact that we had to get cleaned up before we got back in the car and moved on to stuff. And every time I read this psalm, that's what I think of. I think of the lake of slime. I think of the pond with scum. And so it's going to be an interesting psalm for us to read today. Um, David uses this imagery about being stuck in, in muck and mire and, and talks about how God has done something for him that is unimaginably good, delivering him from something that is unimaginably dirty and gross and messy and hopeless. It is not the most flattering picture of David. And in that we find a deep lesson because it is a song of praise to a God who saves but that God has to save people who don't look so good before he saves them. It is a song that doesn't shine a light on the people. It shines a light on a God who rescues and a God who saves. So let me ask you, does anybody here have a personal story about how God rescues, about how God heals, about how God saves? That, I'm telling you, that's what we have. You may feel like God is far away. You may feel like God has left you abandoned. You may feel like life is just one dark corner after another. But I'm telling you, if you are a believer, every single believer in this room has a story. Your story feels to you, maybe because it's your story, maybe you think it's dull or tired or dumb. Maybe you are bored with it. Maybe you are embarrassed by it. But I'm telling you today, you have a story. And the point is not what you look like in that story. The point of your story is it's a story about God's patience and God's kindness and God's goodness and God's love. It is a story that shows Him to be great and awesome. It is a story that is supposed to unveil the majesty of the grace of God. That's the story we have. Love that is lavished on us and poured out on us. And what we get to do is we get to testify about that. It is the greatest privilege that you have in this life. That you have been a recipient of God's amazing grace of a saving, loving, healing, redeeming God. And that you get to testify that God is like that. When was the last time You testified. When was the last time the story of God's grace in your life spilled off your lips? How regular does that come up in your speech, in your conversation? I'm not talking about when I say testified, I'm not talking about just something long, long ago. I was saved when I was four years old. I'm going to be older than that next week, right? (laughs) Right? I'm not saying I have to reach back 40 some odd years to four years old to testify. I'm saying God is still saving and redeeming and healing and 
fixing messes that I make and rescuing me from, right? My story is ongoing. And here's the deal. That's all we got. That's it. We as a church, we don't have anything better or more or really beside that. That's it. We have a God who saves, a God who is good, a God who reached out and rescued us, and that's it. I don't have great advice for you. I I mean, there are principles in the Word of God that we can learn from, but all of that stems from a God who is great enough and good enough and loving enough to save us. And if I don't have that, I don't have anything. So if you come to church and we gather together and we worship the name of the Lord, we don't worship the name of the Lord because we're celebrating that we're better people. We come together to worship the Lord because He is great and good. And if you don't want that, then we got nothing for you. All we have is a God who saves, and that's all we need. It's more than anything else, and it's the only thing that desperately meets the need of our soul. And so our story goes on. I pray that as we talk about this today, that you see that you have a testimony and that you have an opportunity to testify about what God is doing, what God has done. I'm not saying that you don't have problems in front of you. I'm not saying that maybe it doesn't feel dark and lonely and hard, that people haven't betrayed you and hurt you, that you are not well aware of the brokenness that exists in your life at this moment. I'm not saying any of that is not true. Or that faith just washes it away and it isn't there. But I am saying you have a choice about whether you are going to make the conversation of your life about those things or make the conversation of your life about that one. That's what you have the choice of. And that choice is between life and death for you. And that choice is between life and death for the people around you. Will you live a life that testifies? Every single day, we have a chance to testify about God. In normal conversation with the people around us, the question is, do we? So let's go to Psalm 40 and let's start with the first three verses. And we're probably going to spend most of our time just on these three verses because this is the testimony. This is the the song that David writes to testify about what God has done in his life. So Psalm 40, start at verse 1. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. And heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This is a song that David writes. This is a song that is sung in Israel for hundreds and hundreds and thousands even of years. It is a song that is oftentimes in the Psalms what we have is songs that are prayers, conversations with God, things that we say to God. And we sing songs like that here. We sing songs that that ask God to to hear us and heal us and see us. And we talk about thank you, Lord. And there's, there's stuff we sing to God. But then this is a song that is a song to people. It is a song that is not a, especially the first part here, this is a song that is about I want you to know what God has done in my life. It is a speech not to God, these first three verses, but to those around me. That's what we talk about when we say testify. Now, as I've started, we've talked about the fact that we have the privilege of testifying. 
But I'm saying to you, if we're honest, we probably don't testify in a way that measures up to how good God has been to us. That God is good to you every single day. God is good to you every single minute of every single day. We don't testify to that degree. Most of the time, what comes out is some kind of mix of complaint and desire. And, so, and every now and then, when God does something that even thick-headed us can't miss, we go, and by the way, God's been good. So we don't testify all that we could. Sometimes we are aware of the goodness of God, but we still hold back testimony. Why would we do that? Why do you do that? Why are there times where you stop yourself from saying what should be coming out of your mouth? Sometimes it's because we're scared of the reaction. We're scared of, scared of whatever shade of negative might come back our way that we, we imagine could be their response. But I think one of the reasons that we don't testify is because what we see here in David's talking about God's work in his life requires a humility that's hard to come by. David is not ashamed. David is not scared to talk about the reality of the mess that he makes when he takes his life in his hands. God is the hero of the story, not David. David is the one who needs saving. That need for saving does not go away after you become a believer. You can still, and I've seen you and you've seen me, we are still well capable of making messes, We are still well capable of trying to pick our life up and make it our own and do our own thing, right? So the the ability to make a mess and the need for saving does not end when God saves me and makes me his child forever. I still am walking this life and I am still able to, to break things and I'm still called to turn those over to God. There are times in my life where I get hurt by other people. That, that other people do what they shouldn't do. And I can find myself in very dark places in life. And I still, even though I'm a child of God, still need God to come and be Savior, Rescuer, Healer, Redeemer in my life. So that humility is a place we start. Oftentimes that is the challenge and that is what makes it so distasteful that we turn away. But David starts with this. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, let's just say this. Most of the time, maybe not most, a lot of the time that we find ourselves in messes, sin, problems, it's because we couldn't wait. We know what God should be doing. We know when God should be doing it. We know how life should be. We know what life should be. And so David starts off with, I waited patiently for the Lord. Many times my sin comes from an unwillingness to wait. And so because of that, God says, not now. And we say, yes, now. And so we take matters into our own hands and we do things that we shouldn't do. Sometimes we do things that we shouldn't do because they are explicitly wrong. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't be sexually immoral. God says, wait. I say, no. I'm going to do it anyway. And the world around me cheers me on. You got to get what you need. You got to be happy. And we think we've justified it. Because God didn't come through anyway, but what God said to us is wait, and we said no. 
David starts off the psalm by saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. And I want you to know what happened when I waited patiently. Other times, we're, it's not bad things that we're doing. It's even things that are regular things or, or could even be seen as good things. But we do them outside of God's timing, outside of God's power, outside of God's direction. Maybe, you know, you want your kids to behave, and so that's a good thing. You should do that. But you do it outside of God's strength. You do it outside of God's patience. You do it outside of God's compassion, and it becomes a bad thing, even though you're trying to do a good thing. Some people, when they are single, it's not a bad thing to find somebody to be connected to and to have companionship in life, but they don't do it under the direction of God. They do it in desperation. People want to fit in, and so they they blend themselves in, even though they're not following what God asked them to do. They're... There are, there are things that are normal things to do, but when we take life into our own hands, we make a mess. And some of the challenge in our lives to see, to taste, to experience the goodness of God is will we be patient enough to wait? Or will we decide that we've waited long enough and God hasn't come through and so I'm done? God, it must be that you failed. We forgot all about the eternal promise that we had. We forgot all about how life is short and brief and a mist and a moment. We forgot all about that. We've waited long enough and now... We... How many people do you know who walked away from faith or never came to faith because in their evaluation of God's work, God never came through? You know what the issue there is? Impatience. We will not wait and it is a willfulness inside of us. We will not wait for God. Whenever we turn from God's work and God's strength to our own, we inevitably bring destruction to our lives. Even when you're trying to do good, when you turn from God's direction, when you turn from God, from faith in Him, you bring destruction to your life. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6, we reap what we sow. If you reap, if you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap life. Paul says it, cut and dry. David says here, I blew it. I went my own way. I did my own thing. Now in America, go your own way, do your own thing is freedom, independence. I want you to pick this up. David says it's deadly. You will make a mess if you go your own way and do your own thing. It's not that God hasn't made us individuals. We're all unique individuals. But God has not said, well, go do whatever you want. Do what makes you happy. God did not write, I know this is blasphemy, but God did not write the Declaration of Independence. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We are all men are created equal. and We are given uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, we should be able to pursue happiness. That is American. And oftentimes it is a tripping point for being godly and people of faith. God does not say to you, go find happiness somewhere. He says, come, follow me, trust me, give me your life. And so here David says, I went my own way. It is a psalm about drowning in the consequences of your own sin. David says, I made choices that weren't godly choices, and I'm facing the fallout of those things, and now I wait for God. Isn't it interesting that most of the time we find ourselves in messes because we can't wait and then we turn to God when we have to wait? Do you see the grace of God in that? Like we would not do what we need to do to experience the goodness and the wonderful love of God, but God forces us to 
by taking away all our options. So here David is, he describes himself in a pit, stuck. He is desperate, he is helpless, and now he says, I wait patiently for God because he has no other choice. And so all of that sets this up because this to me is amazing, great news. And I hope it is news that you will live by and news that you will share because here's what David is saying in it. When I was stuck in my own sin, when I had made my own mess and I was desperate, the end of verse one says, he turned to me and heard my cry. He turned to me and heard my cry. So David says, I ignored the Lord. I went my own way. I made my own mess. And when I cried out to the Lord, he said, yes. What are we going to do? This is incredible news. I don't know if you understand how incredible this news is. No matter how deep your rebellion has been, no matter how bad your mistakes have been, no matter how far away from God you've traveled, when you cry to Him, He turns to you. Isn't that awesome? That no matter what, God loves me. And I cannot outrun His love. I cannot outpace His kindness, His grace, His mercy. I can make a mess. But when I say I've had enough mess, I've had enough me, I'm ready for you, I need to trust you again, God goes, yes, here I am. Let's put this back together. You may have written your life off. You may have said, I, I'm just, I just don't get it, I can't get it, I'm just going to be wrong, I'm just going to be lost. I'm just... You might have done that. That's the enemy in your ear. But David says to you, I turned to him and he heard my cry. Isn't that amazing? And so there's great news because he says, I was in a slimy pit. I was in mud. I was in mire. There's no way to get out. There's no footing. He got himself into this, but there's no way he can get himself out. Now this, this idea, this picture, if you go to Jeremiah 38, I'm not asking you to do that, but I'm just giving you a reference. If you were to go to Jeremiah 38, There is a story about Jeremiah the prophet who was telling the people of God, you guys are blowing it. God's going to judge you. People didn't like that message. I know that sounds crazy, but people didn't like that message, especially kings when he was telling kings, you're blowing it, you're going the wrong way, God's going to judge you. Kings did not like that message. So what they did is the king had him thrown into a pit, a cistern, a place that gathered water, a well. And it was smooth on the sides and it was deep and it was, it was you know, uh, a rounded or some kind of a, a, a pool place. But it didn't have steps in and out. It was just for water. You would just dip, dip a bucket in and gather water out of it. It was a place to store water. But it was a dry cistern. And, and Jeremiah says that all it had in it was mud and mire and muck. The same words that David uses here. And I was just consumed in it. I was covered in it. I was, I was stuck in it and there was no way out. It was too smooth. I couldn't get out of it. It was a deep hole. And this is the picture that David uses. When Jeremiah, uh, when it was time for him to get out, somebody had to throw a rope down to him and pull him out. He was not able on his own to get out of that pit. If you find yourself in a pit, even of your own making, and you can't get out of it, David says, I've got great news for you. I serve a God who throws a rope down when you're stuck in the pit. I serve a God who lifts you out, who reaches down and lifts you out. For all that might be wrong in your life, if that's right, 
Does any of the rest of it matter? That you serve a God who saw your desperate, eternal need and your helplessness and hopelessness to ever get out of it and said, here, let me get you out. He lifted me out. He sets my feet on a rock so that now instead of this slippery where I can't get a footing, he puts me on a place where my feet can be firm. Even my ability to stand is a gift from God because without his saving and without his placing my feet on a rock, I'd still be in the slimy pit. I think believers, we need to keep in front of us this evidence, this reality, this picture of the grace and love of our God. Because I think if you do, I think if you remember what he's done, some of the problems that you're facing and some of the struggles and some of the lack that you're facing doesn't seem so big. It doesn't seem so hopeless. It doesn't seem so ultimate and final. It seems like, yeah, well, guess what? I was in a pit. And he reached in and rescued me out of that. And his promise is that I will be saved forever. So whatever I face in the meantime is small in comparison. And so what David does in verse 3 is what we have the opportunity to do. He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. So our response, when we get in sight that God has saved us and rescued us, that we were people who were stuck in a slimy pit and we were hopelessly lost and we got ourselves there, God reached in and saved me. Our response, David's response is, I want people to know. It is a song. The word here, hymn of praise, is the word Tehillah. For those of you who were in the the class on Holy Roar, Tehillah, right? It's actually the name for the book of Psalms. The plural of it is the name for the book of Psalms in Hebrews. And so there is this song of praise that comes out of David. The song, it is many will see and fear and trust. It is a public song. It is out loud. It is in front of people. If God has saved you, there is a calling, there is a privilege, there is a life that says, I want people to know. I want people to know this good news. I want God to get the credit for my life. It is a normal response to God's saving hand. And if it is, the question in front of you and I is, so how do we go public with our song of praise to God? How do we go public with it? And when I was young, I thought giving testimony was about showing up at some church service and standing up and talking about what God had done in my life. And that, I guess that's part of it. But that's not what David's talking about here. When, you know, when going out and sharing your faith, testifying about Jesus and sharing with people who don't know him was going around and knocking on doors on Thursday night and talking to people that you don't know and saying, do you know Jesus? Do you know where you would go if you died tonight? And I don't know that that's the sum total of what it means to testify. I think it is so much more normal than that. I think that definition's way too narrow. I think there's conversation that you have with people that points people to God's work in your life, that gives God credit for what he's doing in your life. And I wonder if we have been considering that, if we've been embracing that, that our way of talking and thinking and living is reflecting that God reached down into the pit and lifted me out. I wonder if there are people that God knows need to know about that around you today and tomorrow and the next day. 
And I wonder if, if we tuned into God's Spirit and allowed Him to prompt us, I wonder if we would find words coming out of our mouth that talk about the grace and the goodness and the love of God, the hope that there is not just for this life, but for the life to come. I wonder if it would start spilling out of us more naturally. Because it's testifying. It's not convincing. It's not arguing. It's not any of that. It's saying, this is what happened to me. It's testifying. I've experienced it. I'm living it. I know it because it happened to me. Is there a place for us to grow in testifying? Before I go on to the other parts of this psalm that I want to hit, I want to get one note here because sometimes this word trips us up. Um, In the end of verse 3, it says, Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Many will see, fear the Lord, and put their trust in Him. What David is saying is, My song of praise to God will cause, in public way, it will cause people to see, implication is, God's love, God's work, and fear the Lord, and... Put their trust in Him. So sometimes when you hear the word fear of the Lord, you get this idea of, when I say fear the Lord, like shaking and scared and nervous. But do you see the progression here that David gives? Fear of the Lord cannot be make everybody scared of God. Now, if you've rejected God and you've rebelled against God and you refuse to accept Him, you'll have reason to be scared of Him when He's your judge one day. But that's not the point here. The point is, this fear of the Lord does not bring people to to run and hide from God, to shelter themselves, to try to cover up. This fear of God brings them to trust Him. See that? Many will see what I testify, my life. Many will see it, and they will fear the Lord, and because of fearing the Lord, they will put their trust in Him. This fear of God is the fear of God that we see over and over again in Proverbs and even in the book of Psalms. It is, a, it is a convincedness that God is great, that God is good, and that I can trust Him with anything. That there is nothing bigger and nothing stronger and nothing greater than my God. I have a respect for God. I have an awe of God. And that awe leads me to trust Him. Is there any other logical conclusion of what to do with my life if I believe that God is exactly who He says He is in the Word? Is there any other thing to do than just say, God, here's my life. (laughs) Take it. Use it. Do with it what you want. I don't think there's any. So that's the fear of the Lord. And and keep that in mind as as you read through Proverbs and even Psalms when it talks about the fear of the Lord, even the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. It is not about making people afraid of God. It is about giving people the sense of how awesome He is, how majestic He is, how great He is, and how great is His love towards those who trust Him right? Fear of the Lord. All right, then David goes on. Verse 4 and 5, he says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, though to those who turn aside to false God. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Do you feel like that with God? See, David says, I can never run out of things to say about God. If I started talking about how good God has been and what he has done, I can never run out of the good things that God has done. Now, maybe today, like I said, maybe you're in crisis. Maybe you're in a dark moment and it's hard to call. I wish I could call to mind some of the things that God has done. But listen, do you really believe that God hasn't done anything for you? Do you really believe that God isn't doing anything for you? Or do you think that maybe you just have your focus on a different place? 
right? So David says, if I started focusing on all the things that God has done, your deeds are so many, I could never get to the end of them. I could never tell all of them. And we saw last week this word blessed. This is the life you want to live. The life you want to live, according to David, is the one who trusts in the Lord. A life that is lived trusting God. Now, why wouldn't someone trust God? David says it's because they are proud. They look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. The proud, there will always be a conflict. And I just want to mention this so we can move on to the last part here. But the proud, there will always be a conflict between faith and pride. Believers, check yourselves on this. Christians cannot do pride and faith at the same time. There is no room for proud faith. I don't go marching and I'm so proud that I have faith. There is no pride. You cannot be a Christian in pride. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you can't be a proud Christian. People, many, many are. I'm just saying you're not living by faith when you're proud. You're living in a sense of self-confidence. It is the world's way of feeling strong Too often, pride is what keeps us in the pit because it promises us that we're strong enough and we're smart enough and we'll figure it out and we'll get out. But pride keeps us in the pit. When we put our trust in ourselves, it is in in some way just what he says, a false god. We turn aside to false gods. Pride sells us a false god, me. I'll be my own savior. I'll be my own answer. I'll be my own rescue. And ourselves, the the self-God is one of many false gods, none of which actually save us. They promise to, but they don't actually come through. They, They like, we're down in the pit, and the false god comes and says, oh, this pit, man, I'll tell you what, this is awful, this is terrible. Let's redecorate the pit. You know, put up some shades over here and pretend that that slime doesn't stink like it does. and Spray some Febreze, Right? We'll redecorate the pit or we'll rename it something else that doesn't sound so desperate and hopeless as a pit. It's exactly where you want to be down here. Or you know what I mean? Like this is really what you want. Do what you want. We rename it something and we call it salvation, but it's just stuck under a different title. Right? The only one who saves is our God. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. Many are the wonders you have done. Last thing he says, and this is a little bit, this is really challenging, but it's a little bit confusing. So verses six to eight. Verse six starts, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Then he said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. So you read that, and you're in the Old Testament here, and Old Covenant, where they're going on some regular basis to the tabernacle or the temple, and they're offering sacrifices and those kind of things. And he says, you don't want sacrifices and offerings. In fact, you don't require them. I'm like, what? I just read Exodus and Deuteronomy. I'm pretty sure he required sacrifice and burnt offerings. What are you talking about here? This doesn't make sense. And so David's making a point, and it's a point that was meant to shock them, to show them the real truth here. What David is saying is, the, 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 the obedience, the, the going through the motions, the, 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 the doing the actions that look religious, are not what God wants. 
God is not asking you to just follow a set of rules. Kind of like Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount, the offering, the sacrifice are supposed to represent your heart, not be in place of your heart. When we go through the Sermon on the Mount in the fall, what you're going to see is that there are laws that were given in the Old Testament and they followed those laws to the letter, but they missed the whole point. And so Jesus keeps bringing them back. You think that the law saves you, but the law condemns you because you don't, you don't live it from your heart. You don't live it all the way through. And so David is saying, God does not want your empty offerings and your empty sacrifices. God does not want you to, to follow the rules with an empty heart. God does not want your good luck charm obedience. The people who come to church because something's going wrong in their life and if I go to church, then God will do good things. God doesn't want that. God wants you to come so that you will know Him, that you will know His love and His passion for you. God wants you to live, to serve Him, to be close to Him, to love pouring out your life for the one who gave His life for you. That's what God wants. Let me give you a very practical illustration of this, and they don't know I'm going to do this, but last night, we're practicing for worship team. I say we very loosely because I was not, but there was worshiping practice going on here. And I'm sitting out here, I'm sitting right back here, and I'm watching them practice. And so sometimes stage can be a tricky thing. Stage can be a thing about ego and, and look at me and I'm up here and whatever. But here's what's going on last night while they're practicing. These folks are just worshiping the Lord. They are getting moved and just, just you could just watch them. And they don't know I'm watching them and, and picking this up, but I'm like, isn't that cool? Nobody's out here except me sitting back here. And they're pouring their hearts out to God. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, I don't want you to get up on Sunday morning and put on a show and think you checked something off for God. I want it to come from down inside of you. I want it to be real. I want it to be alive. I want it to be breathing inside of you. I don't want your sacrifices and your offerings when it's just like, well, God, did you see me do that? I hope you like that because whatever. It's, Lord, I cannot believe you've been so good to me to choose me, to pick me, to love me, to care for me, to give your life for me. Oh, I want to show the world about it. That's what it is. Is that what we have? Is that how we live? That's what David is saying here. And that's what God, God wants. I desire to do your will, God. Your law is within my heart. I want you to have my life. Can you say that your life reflects a testimony of a God who is trustworthy? A God who saves. Do people see that God is good by the way you talk, by the way you act? By the way, before we close, God actually took away their ability to do offerings and sacrifices. In 70 AD, the temple is raised. And, and actually, in the middle of their history here, they are deported away from Jerusalem. And they can't bring the required burnt offerings. They are unable to do what God commanded. Do you know what that does? It says, guess what, guys? It was never about that. It wasn't about that. And God graciously removes this stumbling block. And you know what they did? The rabbis started teaching them, well, listen, we can't do the sacrifices and offerings, but you can replace it if you will desperately study the Torah and you will fast and you will do good deeds. They just created a different rule book. And they missed the whole point. God doesn't want your empty sacrifices. God doesn't want your empty obedience. He wants you. Every believer in this room has a testimony. Every single believer has a story of God's goodness and our weakness. The question is, will we tell it? Will we let God show us how to share it? 
I guarantee there are more opportunities than you would realize if you don't ask God to show you. So as we close today, I'm asking, will you say, God, show me? There may be formal opportunities for you to share the goodness of God where we come together on Sunday and we serve together, VBS coming up, and there may be lots of formal opportunities for us to testify. But I guarantee you there are lots of informal ones too. Ones that will be spirit-directed in your life. And if you will tune in and let God use you, your life and your experience with God can be a testimony, just like David's was, about a God who saves, a God who reaches down in the slimy pit that I put myself into and rescued me anyway. Because when I cried to Him, He turned to me. And you can give praise and glory to our great God. The question is, will we? And that question, that invitation is answered as we walk out of this place today. So let's stand together. Let's commit this to the Lord. And let's go from here ready to be faithful in our testimony about what God has done in our lives. Let's pray. Father, truly you have been faithful.